Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we open your word, we will hear in it the voice of our shepherd. And as we look now at uh, what it means for your people to have a king, that we will, by the work of your Holy Spirit, through your word, rejoice more in our King Jesus, who saved us, um, who resurrected us from death to life, and who one day will come when all will bow and all will see his glory. We hope and long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. If I could even try and say something about politics from this pulpit that would not be controversial, it would be to say that people care deeply about who rules over them. History, philosophy, anthropology, sociology will all tell us that the question of who reigns and how they should reign are of the utmost importance to us. These are questions that are consuming the hearts of many people in this world at this moment. Our passage this morning deals with these questions in regards to the nation of Israel. Who should reign over God's people? Please turn to 1 Samuel 7 verse 15. We'll begin by reading 7:15 to ver- chapter 8 verse 3. 1 Samuel 7:15 to 8:3. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit every year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Israel has been under the leadership of Samuel, serving in the role of judge. The judges have been ruling Israel since they came to the promised land. And you'll remember that the time of the judges generally followed a cycle, a pattern. Israel would fall into sin and anarchy. They would be defeated then and and ruled over by an enemy. Then a judge would come and deliver them and establish peace and enforce righteousness. And then one of two things would happen. The judge would die, and Israel would descend back into anarchy, or the judge himself would start to lead the people back into sin. So now Samuel is the judge, and he is a good judge. The best judge they have yet seen. He makes a yearly circuit to deal with the people's cases. He brings them the word of the Lord. Samuel was the epitome of everything that the role of judge could be. He represented God to the people. He applied God's law to rule over them. What Samuel does not know is that he is also the last judge. Samuel, surprisingly like Eli, 
establishes his sons after him to inherit his work, but seems to be complacent about the way that his sons already in his lifetime are abusing their position. So Samuel must bear some responsibility for the sin of the people which is about to take place. But even taking Samuel's sons into account, I think few people would have denied that Israel was enjoying the tenure of the best judge it had seen in its history. Samuel, you'll remember last week, had led the people in repentance to put away their idols, had prayed for their deliverance from the Philistines. He'd raised an altar to remember that it is the Lord that helps them. He'd ruled justly and faithfully. And it is at this moment in history, under this faithful rule of the judge, that the elders of the people come forward and they ask for a king. Let's continue in chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. Keep this open through the sermon. We'll keep returning to this chapter. Verses 4 to 6. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Our first point this morning is this. God's people desire a human king. In fact, they demand that Samuel himself, as the judge, be the one to appoint a king for them. The elders lead off with the most righteous reasons they can think of for getting a king, though these reasons are clearly not the most honest ones. They've fallen into that trap of wanting something sinfully And then afterwards, trying to think, what is the most righteous reason I can justify this thing that I've already decided I have to have? They tell Samuel that they need a king because he's soon going to die, and it's clear that his sons uh, will not lead the people righteously after him. Now, whether or not Samuel agrees with the people's concern about his sons, he clearly disagrees that the right solution is to appoint a king. Samuel sees this as an evil request, and he brings it before the Lord. Let's read God's response in verses 7 to 9. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God helps Samuel to see why the people truly want a king. Samuel believes that the people are rejecting the judges, in part he's upset that they're rejecting him and his family. But God corrects Samuel. They're not asking for a king to replace the judges. They're asking for a human king to replace God himself as king. The people themselves make their own desires more plain when they later respond to Samuel's warnings by saying, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we shall be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. It's important here to remember what the role of judge really meant. The judge was one of the clear ways that Israel was meant to be distinct from its neighbors, set apart as God's people. 
In many ways, in day-to-day operations, the judge looked a great deal like a king. The things the people wanted a king to do, to judge them, to go out before them, to fight their battles, these are all things that God was accomplishing through his judges. So what are the key differences between a king and a judge that are relevant as we think about Israel's request? One clear difference between a king and a judge was that while a king was meant to look like an ultimate authority, a judge was much more clearly the upholder of the rule of a higher authority. This is one of the ways that the Old Testament rule of judge looked a lot like our judges today. In a courtroom, the judge is clearly the one with the highest position. They can require things of people, they can make rulings. But the judge is clearly has authority because it is bestowed on them from a higher authority that they represent. They hand out their judgments based on the authority given to them to administer the law. So they, in effect, rule under the authority of the law and the law givers. So this was also true of Israel's judges. They were administrators under a law that was given to them and to Israel by God. This derived authority was clear in how judges ruled and in how they were selected. Judges did not receive their appointment by virtue of their birth or their position. They were chosen specifically by God to accomplish tasks he assigned for them. God called and equipped his judges to act on his behalf. So as long as the judge was ruling, it was clear that it was actually God who was ruling. We see this in the book of Judges. After Gideon leads Israel in their famous victory against the Midianites where they smash the pots and they wave their torches and the Midianites are thrown into confusion, the people come and then they met the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So the people have just seen this great victory, and they say to Gideon, look what you've done, you should be our king, and not just you, but your son and your grandson. They recognize that one of the key differences of kingship from uh, from the role of the judges is that kings could establish multi-generational dynasties. Their sons are born into kingship, while every new judge must be appointed by God. Gideon's response to them is to say that He and his sons will not rule because it is God that rules over them and should rule over them. Gideon recognizes that as long as Israel is ruled by judges, they already have a higher ruler, and that is God. He is just a representative carrying out God's will. And he knows, he knows from his own experience that it was not him working that victory against Midian. That was God's victory on behalf of his people. So this is a pretty wise and righteous declaration from Gideon. And it's more than a little ironic that just after he says this, he demonstrates what a terrible decision it would have been to make him and his sons kings. He immediately goes and he makes this golden ephod. And it becomes a horrible idol for all of Israel. And then his son Abimelech tries to claim the right to lead Israel because he's Gideon's son, just like a king would. And the result is disastrous. Every time a judge and his sons, Gideon, Samuel, Eli, try and turn that judgeship based into a hereditary line of rulers, then they fail to represent God. 
God's representatives had to be individually chosen and equipped by him. Now, I would say that if you look at our own democratic society, we tend to agree that this is a better way to find rulers. The goal of democracy is for people to put their collective wisdom together to find the, and appoint the best leader based on merit. And as soon as that leader finishes their term, we begin the same process of finding a leader over again. Because we elected that person, they are meant to rule as our representative under our authority, the authority of the people. Theoretically, in a democracy, the king is not the prime minister or the president. The king is the people. Now, I think most of us would agree that history has shown that even the will of a whole nation of people is fairly fallible in choosing leaders based on merit. But what if God himself chose the person best suited for the job, and that person ruled on God's behalf? Then, when the judge rules, God is king. So the people's request that Samuel give them a king is not just to ask for a removal of the judges, but effectively ask to be ruled over by men instead of God. They essentially admit this when they confess that they really want us to be like the nations around them. Those nations did not desire to be ruled by God in any capacity. Their kings were the highest authorities. Israel is looking at those godless idolaters with their human kings and they're saying, yeah, that looks good. We would like that too. They don't want God's representative leading them to victories worked by God. They don't want God's judge applying God's law over them. They want a human king to work victory for them and use his wisdom over them. God tells Samuel this is the same idolatry by which people, the people built the golden calf. Remember that to worship idols is to worship ourselves. Idols are gods fashioned by us to do what we want them to do. Because we tell idols what to do, to trust in an idol's wisdom and might is just to trust in our own. When Israel demanded a king like the nations around them, they wanted to be led by the wisdom and might of men rather than God. They wanted a human ruler they could touch and relate to. That would make them feel important. This is the person they want to work judgment and deliverance for them. We don't see idol worship often in our society anymore, but we still see this same idolatrous heart. People's desire to trust in the autonomous wisdom and might of men. This is clear when we look often at the politics of this world. Especially in societies where we are fortunate enough to choose our leaders. The people of this world approach politics with a kind of desperation. Because politicians are the ones that we hope and expect to work deliverance and justice for us. They are human saviors on our terms. For non-believers to choose the right ruler rather than the wrong one is the difference between deliverance and utter ruin. All of their hope is bound up in men. This is the paradigm that Israel wanted, to bind their hope up in the hands of men. So Israel is asked to give up their distinctness as a people with God as king. They want to be ruled by men like the nations around them. And Samuel does not want to grant that request. But God tells him to do so. As long as Samuel first warns them of the dangers of appointing a human king, which Samuel does, 
Let's read verses 10 to 18 of 1 Samuel 8. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his grounds and some to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Our second point this morning is this. Samuel warns God's people of the tyranny of human kings. The content of Samuel's warning is taken from the nations surrounding Israel. The nations that God's people want to be like. Samuel is telling God's people how those kings treat their subjects. He starts by explaining some of the basic things that a king will exercise his right to do. But it will show how the exercise of a king's rights will progressively become tyrannical. He will start by conscripting people into his service to fight his wars, to work for him, but this will slowly become claiming the best property as reward for his servants. He'll start to take his own tithes, either by taking from the money that was set aside for God himself or by adding extra taxes. Citizenship will soon be indistinguishable from slavery as the king's authority becomes absolute rule. Samuel ends this warning very severely. He will take a tenth of your flocks. You shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. God has told his people, based on this evidence from the nations around you, your king will become your overlord. You will be slaves of the one you chose to rule over you. And when you cry out to God, God will not answer you because you replaced God with your king. It is to your king, the one who is sinning against you, that you are supposed to be crying out for deliverance. God will not answer you. This is a grim warning, and it is, of course, prophetic of what is going to come in Israel's history. Kings and usurpers are going to gather chariots and armies to protect their rule and fight for their glory, just like Samuel said. Saul himself, the first king, will give vineyards and land and tithes to his special servants and friends. Solomon clearly used conscripted labor. And by the time his son Rehoboam takes the throne, the people come before him desperate, begging him to lighten their load. And Rehoboam's response is, no, my load will be so much heavier upon you than that of my father. He will only increase their labor. This leads to the revolt of the northern kingdom. It is only a few generations after Samuel's warning that the people try to overthrow the kings they chose specifically for the behavior of which Samuel warned them. Samuel's warning shows the outcome of putting our trust in men. 
Because every single man is ruled by Adam, is under the fall and sin. It is impossible for us to be ruled by men without feeling the effects of our leader's sinful nature. Even if that leader has more noble designs than another might, it often seems like it's only a matter of time before a leader's power is manipulated by their own sinful desire. Even the world has recognized this. Our societies are full of laws of checks and balances to limit the power even of the people that we declared were best suited for leadership. Many countries impose term limits on their leaders and there is great anxiety if a leader should try and remove those limitations. Even without official term limits, leaders are often voted out of office because the people decide that they've just been in power too long. They're starting to get too comfortable with their position. So history has shown us exactly what God has told his people. That to trust in men, to place our hope in ourselves, will lead to tyranny. And on the day when God's people cry out over the sin of the deliverers they have chosen, their own kings, God leaves them with their choice. He will not answer. Eventually, the sin of God's people under the wicked kings leads to exile. The hubris and decadence and vanity of the kings lead God's people to being carried away from the land of promise. First, the northern people, whose kings were more consistently tyrannical, and then the southern kingdom. And yet, with all of this horrible future in view, God still grants their request for a king. Let's read chapter 8, verses 19 to 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No! But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Even after the real motives of God's people's request are made plain, God tells Samuel to grant that request, and Samuel makes preparations to anoint a king in Israel. But if a king is sinfully asked for and will only lead to tyranny, why does God grant this request? Because God has his own reasons for granting a king. What the people desire wrongly, God will use for good. If we go back into Israel's law, we can see God's own plans for a king in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20 says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he require for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it uh, in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, 
his God by keeping all the words of this law and those, these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. We can see here that God prophetically spoke of the exact moment that Israel is in now. They are in the land, and they want a king like the nations around them. And even here, God says he is prepared to grant this request. But God also starts to establish his own blueprint for a righteous king. The king will not hoard goods or people, uh, ensnaring his own heart in sin. He will prepare with the priests his own copy of God's law, which he will regularly study. Principally, what this, what this adherence to the law is meant to work in the heart of the king more than anything else is humility, so that he will not look down on his people or think that he is above obedience to God's law. You can see that God's ideal picture of a king looks a great deal like his design for a judge. The king, like the judge, should see himself as under the authority of God and his law. He's a representative of God equal to his brothers. His leadership is not rooted in superiority, but in added responsibility to help God's people uphold God's law. This is always God's design for leadership, whether it's the leadership of a king, a priest, an elder, a husband, a father. It is not rooted in rights based on superiority. It is rooted in responsibility before God to be received and carried out in humility. So if the role of king was meant to look very much like the role of judge, what would God's reasons be for establishing kings rather than judges? The book of Judges itself examines the whole system of the judges, and it repeatedly delivers this evaluation, which we hear again in its closing verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The final note on the system of judges is that it did not work. No judge could break the cycle of anarchy and restoration and anarchy and restoration. The judges could not reign over God's people like a king could. The benefits of kingship were mainly twofold. First, the king was seen as having greater authority over the people, which could be used to enforce adherence to the law and uphold righteousness. The second benefit of kingship is that its perpetual rule meant that this order and obedience could be maintained beyond just one human lifetime. A dynasty could theoretically guard righteousness forever. What we should notice is that the potential benefits of having a king are deeply connected to its inherent dangers. The greater authority of a king, which could lead the people to security and righteousness, could also lead to the dangers Samuel had warned about. That dynastic nature of kingship could ensure a continuous peaceful reign, but it could also lead to unrighteous, unqualified men inheriting kingship from their fathers. So when compared to the judges, the idea of kingship came with both greater possible benefits and also greater possible dangers, and this all depended on the character of the king. I think once again, if we look at our own society, we can say, that we have seen our democratic process produce squabbling, partisanship, competition, vanity, 
political leaders serving themselves rather than the people who elected them. Our political system does not produce perfect righteous leadership. Now you might likely agree that a king, an absolute leader, could produce a better society if that king were perfect. It would be better to have that leader imposing their will upon the people. But we don't expect that to happen, and history has shown that it's unlikely, so we choose our system of government because even though it comes with less potential for a perfect society, it is also meant to limit the consequences of sinful leaders. In the history of God's people, we see both these benefits of good kings and the dangers of bad kings play out clearly. We've already noted this morning how many kings ended up falling into those exact dangers Samuel said would take place. How that ultimately led to ruin. Saul himself, the first king, will demonstrate much of the evil of God's people asking for a king to be ruled over by men instead of God. But after Saul, God raises up for himself a king who will desire to be faithful according to God's law, according to his word. Our third point this morning is this. God grants a king because of his own greater plans to establish a righteous kingship. God said in Deuteronomy that the king would be marked, the righteous king would be marked by his love of God's law and that law working humility in him. David himself writes in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And David writes in Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. David continually demonstrates what it means to have a righteous king. And the people experience the sweetness of being ruled over by a righteous king. A man given total authority to judge and lead into battle, who is himself a humble servant under the authority of God. But even David... That king who Israel would forever cite as their greatest, most righteous ruler is himself a sinful man. And in his own lifetime, there is rebellion and plague and upheaval all on account of David's own sin. Indeed, one of the ways that David sets apart himself as a righteous man is by mourning over his sin and repenting. He writes in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But through David, through this man who seemed to be the best possible leader, God was preparing the way for a king, a greater David who would be both infinitely more righteous and infinitely more humble, a king who would keep the law perfectly every single day of his life, who would not once succumb to sin, but who would also be gentle and lowly, becoming a servant washing the feet of his own followers. David himself prophesied of the coming of this greater king when he wrote in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus Christ came with the greatest royal lineage. He is the son of God, worthy to sit on the throne of heaven and earth, to call Jesus king is to call God king. And yet he became man 
He became a descendant of David, worthy to sit upon the throne of Israel that God established, inheriting David's title as a greater David, living a perfect life. Before he rose, ascended to his heavenly throne, Jesus told his disciples who were squabbling over which of them, sinful men like us, would be most worthy to reign at his side. But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' own day, the nations around Israel, Rome and Greece, were still demonstrating the dangers of human kingship that Samuel warned about. Emperors who served themselves at the expense of their own people. But Jesus, as God's perfect, righteous king, shows what authority looks like in his kingdom. He does not enslave his people, he becomes a slave to them, binding himself to serve the interests of his people rather than his own interests. He is the son of man, the inheritor of the throne of the human king David, come to this world from his heavenly throne to serve us even unto death, to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay the debt on the cross that we could never pay, to take our punishment there so that we might not have to. That is our king wearing a crown of thorns hanging from a tree. Our king took our shame and wrath and won our redemption. We can be declared justified before God, guiltless, because our king was called guilty. And our king broke the curse of death and rose again so that he might reign forever that we might live as his subjects forever, eternally enjoying citizenship under the lordship of our perfect king who loved and served and died for us. Praise God, brothers and sisters, that even as we wait for the consummation of the kingdom of Jesus, the time when every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, that even now we can already live under the lordship of King Jesus, our perfect, righteous, humble, beautiful Savior and Lord. To be the church is to call Jesus your king now. To be saved by him is to live with him as your king to give up rebelling against him and to live to serve him who himself served us. This was God's design, that after we had seen the failures of the judges, the failures even of human kings, after Israel had delighted in righteousness, the righteousness of David, and yet had longed to be ruled over him again, even longed to be ruled over by a greater David with his own sin removed, this was God's plan so that we would see the sweetness of being ruled over by Jesus. To be a Christian, to be a part of his church, is to declare our allegiance to our king, to love and obey him, and to serve his kingdom with our whole lives, with everything that we are. 
I've tried a few times in this sermon to draw comparisons between what we see in our passage and our own contemporary situation. Because we in the church, just like God's people, just like Israel, are so drawn to look at the nations around us, to look at the culture outside the church, and to say to God, we want what they have. Now, it is good for us as Christians to care about human government, to pray for them, to even work in any way made available to us to help them work towards uh, righteous outcomes. We see God's people doing this even in their exile. Men like Daniel and Nehemiah faithfully serving under foreign kings in Babylon and Persia. But these men knew that they were obeying a greater king than Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus. God was their king. And you have a king now. God is your king. It is his kingdom we desire to come. His will we desire to be done. And he has placed Jesus, God himself, on a throne over us. Brothers and sisters, even as you desire to righteously participate in human politics, do not place your hope in the political systems of the world around you. Do not expect salvation from them. Or let our hope and peace and delight depend upon those systems. This would be to be like these Israelites who desired a king like the nations around them. Do not look to human politicians to be your saviors. They might correspond more or less with God's picture of righteousness. They might be the wise choice of leader for God's people to desire in this world. But if we, as God's people, ever start to treat the leaders of human systems as our savior, as those upon whom our hope depends, if our minds and hearts are more preoccupied with their rule and reign than with our service to the kingdom of heaven, then we are dethroning God in our own hearts and putting our trust in the wisdom and might of men. Our preoccupation or desperation regarding human leaders shows we are trusting more in men than God. God says this is idolatry. And we should heed the warning Samuel gave to the Israelites. That warning should sting us all the more because we have already seen the perfect, enthroned, eternal king. There is also a warning here for those of us who do serve and love the Lord to whom leadership has been given. If you are an elder, a father, a husband, a parent, or even hold authority in this world through politics or work, then you should hear the warning Samuel has given God's people and contrast that with God's blueprint for righteous leadership. What it means to not be a leader in your own right, but to represent God. Leadership is not about superiority. It is about responsibility. We rule not based on merit, but only to represent God. And our leadership is only righteous insofar as we are submitting to and applying his word in the sphere in which we have been entrusted with leadership. Let us look to the example of Christ, sacrificing ourselves, seeing our leadership as a gift, not to us, but to those we lead for the sake of their good. And if they are believers, for the sake of their sanctification. 
Remember that we will one day stand before God and be held accountable for how we have led. And lastly, I want to speak to the person whose hope and fear is still bound up in things other than God, is still bound up in this world. Christ is not your king. You are still tossed about in the raging waves of politics and worldly systems. If you are still placing all of your hope for salvation in men, I pray that you would repent of your rebellion against your true king and put your trust in him. The anxiety that you see in this world around you right now, and likely your own anxiety about this world around you, should be evidence enough that the people and systems that you and the people of this world are putting your trust in are hopelessly unstable. The true king promises peace and rest to all who trust in him. He is at war with his enemies, the world, the devil, sin himself, but they will not be victorious. Wicked leaders and sin and the devil will not get the last word. He will have victory. And he will reign forever, just as surely as he victoriously rose from the dead, delivering from death all who believe in him. And he will rule his people justly for all eternity. So friend, set your hope in things that last. Set aside your hope in what is passing away. Call out to Jesus who humbly died for his people to save them and make them his own. Become his subject, a child of God, united with the king himself by trusting in his death and resurrection. And you will know the joy of resting in the reign of the perfectly righteous king who will be victorious, who will reign once all these worldly kings have ended in righteousness and peace over his people forever. Praise God for our King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have a king. Even as Samuel warns about the dangers of human kings, I praise you that you were preparing for all authority and victory to be bestowed upon the perfect King Jesus. I thank you that he reigns over us even now and that one day he will reign over all things, that we will see him enthroned. Father, as we look towards that wonderful day, I pray that we will rest in his death and resurrection by which we are made his. Father, may we repent of our rebellion against him. And if anyone here is still living as his enemy on the road to being one of those who will be defeated by him in eternity in hell. I pray that they would call out to the perfect, wise, good King Jesus Christ and be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.